Hello again, I'm Richard Figge, and this is For Reading Out Loud. Thanks so much for joining me tonight. This evening's author is Bram Stoker, born in Dublin in 1847. How many of us can name any of his works except Dracula, published in 1897? And yet, he was a man of many parts. He was a civil servant, he wrote numerous novels, short stories, and tales for children— He became well-known for his insightful and beautifully written theater criticism. This latter activity, in fact, led to his friendship with the famous actor-manager Henry Irving. Stoker became the business manager of Irving's Lyceum Theater in London, a position he held for 27 years. Tonight's story is something of a tour de force, a story narrated by a simple and unschooled man who, in his plain-spoken way, tells a story of subtlety and complexity. Greater Love by Bram Stoker We was just standing here at about eleven in the evening, and the moon was beginning to rise. We could see the little patch of light growing bigger and bigger just as it is now, and we knew that before many moments the light would be up over the sea. My back was to the sea, and Bill was leaning against the handrail, just like you now. It ain't much, sir, after all, leastwise to you, but it was, ay, and it is, a deal to me, for it has all my life in it, such as it is. There's a deal of poetry and storytelling in books, but, Lord bless you, if you could see the heart right through of even such men as me, you'd have no need of books when you wanted poetry and romance. I often think that them chaps and them don't feel a bit more nor do we when things is happening. It's only when they're written down that they become heroes and martyrs and such like. Why, Bill was as big a hero as any of them. I often wished as how I could write, that I might tell all about him. Awesomedever, if I can't write, I can talk. And if you're not in a hurry, and will wait till I tell you all, I'll be proud. It does me good to talk about Bill. Well, when I turned round and faced Bill, I see his eyes with the light in them, and they was glistening. Bill gives a big gulp and says to me, "'Joe, the world's a big place.' big enough for you and me to live in without quarrelling, and mayhap the same God as made one woman would make another, and we might both live and be happy. You and me has been comrades for long, and God knows that next to Mary I'd be sad to see you die. So whatever comes, we won't quarrel or think hard of one another, sure we won't, Joe. He put out his hand, and I took it sudden. We held hands for a long time, I thought he was in low spirits, and I wished to cheer him, so I says, "'Why, Bill, who talks of dying that's as hearty as we?' He shook his head sadly, and says he, "'Joe, I don't value my life at a pin's head, and I ain't afraid to die, for her sake or for yours. I, even for her pleasure, I, 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 no matter. Just see if I turn coward if ever I get the chance to do her a service.' While we stood there a long time, Neither of us said a word, for I didn't like to speak, although I would several times have liked to ask him a question. And then I gave up wishing to speak, and began to think like him. I thought of all the time Bill and me had been friends and comrades, and how fond we both were of Mary and she of us. You see, when we was all children, the little thing took such a fancy for both of us that we couldn't help liking her for it, and so we became in the course of time like big brothers to her. 
She would come down on the shore with Bill and me and sit quiet all day and never say a word or do anything to annoy us or put us out. Sometimes we'd go out sailing, and then she would come and sit beside whoever was steering till he'd ask her to come up and sit on his knee. Then she'd put up her little arms round his neck and kiss him, and would stay as quiet as a mouse till she'd have a chance to change her place. That was the way, sir, that we both came to be so fond of her. And sure enough, when she began to grow up, Bill and me wanted none other but her. And the more she grew, the prouder we were of her, till at last we found out that we were both of us in love with her. But we never told her so or let her see it, and she had grown up so amongst us that she never suspected it. She said so long after. Then Bill and me held a kind of counsel about what was to be done, and so we came to be talking on the bridge that night. Mary was grown into a young woman then, and we feared that some other chap might take her fancy if one of us didn't get her at once. Bill was very serious, far more serious than me, for I had somehow got the idea into my head as how Mary cared for me, and as long as I felt that, I couldn't feel either unhappy or downhearted. All at once Bill's face grew brighter, and there was a soft look in his eyes. Joe, he says, whatever happens, Mary must never hang her head. The lass is tender-hearted, and she likes both of us, we know, and as she can only love one of us, it might pain her to think that when she was marrying one man she was leaving a hole in the life of his comrade, so she must never know as how we both love her if we can prevent it. When we got that far, I began to grow uneasy. I began to distrust Bill, God forgive me for it, and to think that maybe he was fixing some plan for to cut me out. I must have been jealous, that was it. But I was punished for my distrust when he went on, Joe, old lad, we both love her, and we love each other, and God knows I'd go away and willin' and leave her to you, but who knows that mayhap she'd like me better of the two. Women is queer creatures in letting a feller see their hearts till they see his first. Then he stayed quiet, and so I says to him, "'How are we to manage to do that, Bill? If we tell her, won't she know that we both love her? And you said you wouldn't like her to do that.' "'That's just what I was thinking of,' he says, "'and I see how we may do it. One of us must go to her and find out if she loves him, and if she does, the other will say nothing.' I felt feared, so I asked him, "'Who is to go, Bill?' He came over and took me by the shoulder, and says he, "'Joe, so far as I can see, the lass cares for you the most. You must go first and find out.' I tried not to appear joyful, and I says, "'Bill, that isn't fair. Who goes first has the best chance. Why won't you go, or why not draw lots?' I've had a many hard tussles in my time, both with men and things, but I never had such a struggle as I had to say them words. "'Joe,' says Bill. You must do all you can to win her yourself, and don't let any thoughts of me hinder you. I'll be best pleased by seeing her and you happy, if so be she loves you. Then he stood up from leaning on the rail, and says he, Joe, give me your hand before we go, and mind, I charge you on your honor as a man, never while I'm living, to let Mary know as how I loved her, in case she chooses you. So I promised, I felt Bill's hand grip like a vice, and then we turned and walked away home and never spoke another word that night, either of us. 
I didn't sleep much that night, and when it began to get to morning I got up and went down to the sea and had a swim, and that freshened me up somewhat. I wasn't much of a swimmer myself, but I could manage to keep myself up pretty well. That was the point where I envied Bill most of all. He was the finest swimmer I ever see. He did a many things well, and no lad in this county could come near him in anything he chose to do. But in swimming, none could come and nigh him at all, and many's the time it stood to others as well as himself. Well, when I had had my bathe, I went up toward Mary's house and found myself going in to ask her straight off to marry me. Then I began to think it was too early for Mary to be up, so I stole away on tiptoe and walked round the house. Then I thought I'd go and look up Bill and came annoy his house. But when I came to the door, as I didn't like to knock, I thought I'd spear in and see if he was asleep. So I stole to the window and looked in. I shall never forget to my dying day what I saw then. I wasn't a bad fellow, thank God, at any time, but I couldn't be a bad fellow or do anything I thought very wrong after that. There was Bill, just as I had left him the night before. He had never changed his clothes, and the candle was flickering down in the socket, unheeded. He was kneeling down by the bed with his arms stretched out before him and his face down on the quilt. That was thirty-seven year ago, but it seems like yesterday. I thought at first he was sleeping, but I saw from a movement he made that he was awake. So I stole away, guilty-like, and went down and stood beside the sea. I took off my hat and let the wind blow about my forehead, and somehow it felt burning, and I looked out over the sea for long. Somehow my heart beat like as if it was lead, and I felt half-choked. I don't know how long I would have stayed there only for Bill. He came behind me and put his hand on my shoulder and said sudden, "'Why, Joe, what are you doing here?' I turned, startled, and saw that he was smiling. I was so thunderstruck at seeing the change that for a moment I said nothing. He says to me again, "'Joe, I thought you'd have more to do than think of eating this morning, and it's bad to court on an empty stomach. So come up to my place. I've got breakfast for the both of us.' I couldn't realize that this hearty man was the man I saw praying after the long night. I looked at him keenly, but I could see no sign of his acting apart in his face. He was gayer and livelier than ever, and in such good spirits that he made me gay too. I couldn't forget how I'd seen him a short while since, but I laid the thought by and didn't let it bother me. I went up to his place. It was clean and tidy as ever, and the breakfast was ready. He made me eat some, and when I was done, he brushed me up and tidied me, and says he, "'Go in and win, old lad. God bless you.' I went away toward Mary's house, but before I lost sight of Bill I turned, and he waved his hand to me with a kind smile and went in and shut the door. I went on toward Mary's, but the farther I went, the slower I got, and when I got to the garden gate I stopped altogether. I stayed mooning about there for a while, till at last Mary sees me and comes out. I don't know how to tell you what took place then. I ain't more bashfuller than a man of my years ought to be, but somehow it comes rough on a man to tell this kind of thing. Oh, no, it, it ain't that I don't remember it all, for I do well. But, you see, you won't laugh at me. I knowed you wouldn't. I ask your pardon. Well, 
to prove it to you, I'll say what I never said yet to mortal except Mary, and that only once. Mary comes out to me, running like a girl with her face all dimpling over with pleasure, and she says, Why, Joe, what brings you here at this hour? Come in, Joe. Mother, here's Joe. Have you had your breakfast, Joe? Come in. I felt that I would never have courage to speak out before her mother if I went into the cottage, so I stayed beside the gate and let her talk on. As I looked at her then, I could hardly believe what I was come for. It seemed like doing something wrong to try to change her from what she was. She looked so lovely and so bright that it seemed a pity ever to wish her to be aught else, even my own wife. And beside, the thought came and hit me hard that mayhap she wouldn't have me after all. I tried to think on that, but, law bless me, I couldn't. It seemed something so terrible that I couldn't think it. However, I stood still, saying nothing, till she began to notice. I wasn't used to be sheepish before Mary or anyone else, so when she had done her talking, she looked at me sudden, and then her eyes fell, and after a moment she blushed up to the roots of her hair and says, "'Joe, what's the matter with you? You don't look as usual.' I blurted all out in a moment, "'No, Mary, nor I ain't the same as usual.' for I'm in trouble. She came close to me before I could say any more. She wasn't looking down or blushing then, and she says, Oh, Joe, I'm sorry for that. And she put her arm on my shoulder. Then she went on in a kind of tender voice. Did you tell Bill? Yes, I says. And what did he say? He told me to come to you. To me, Joe, she says, and looked puzzled. "'Yes,' I says in despair-like, "'I'm in trouble, Mary, for I want you to marry me.' "'Oh, Joe,' she says, and drew away a little. Then she says to me, with a queer look on her face, "'Joe, run and tell Bill I want to see him, to come as soon as he can.' Well, them words went through me like so many knives, and if ever I could have hated Bill— it would have been then. What could she want Bill for, I thinks to myself, but to find out if he loves her too, and to have him? I thinks how mad a woman would be to have me when she could get a man like Bill. I was afraid to say anything, so I set off smart for him, for I feared I wouldn't be able to tell him if I didn't go at once. I tried not to think where I was going down the road, but I couldn't get her words out of my head. They seemed to keep with my feet— and I heard them over and over again. Tell Bill I want to see him. Tell Bill I want to see him. At last I got to the house and found Bill inside mending a net that hung again the wall. He turned round quickly when I came in, and his heart began to beat so hard that I could see it thumping inside his guernsey. He saw I wasn't looking pleased, so he came near and put his two hands on my shoulders and looked me in the face. "'What cheer, Joe?' he says, and I could see that he was trying to control himself. When I told him the message, he began trembling all over and got white as a sheet. Then he says to me in a thick kind of voice, "'Joe, how did she look when she said it?' I tried to tell him and asked him to hurry on. "'In a minute,' says he, and went into the other room. When he came back, I turned round expecting to see him got up a bit, 
but there he was just as he went in, in his old working clothes. But he was quiet looking, and had a smile on his face. Bill, old lad, I says, aren't you going to tidy up a bit? Mayhap Mary'd like to see you neat. No, says he, I'll go as I am. If it be as it may be, she won't like me none the worse for coming quick, and if it don't be, come on, Joe, and don't keep her waiting. Well, we walked up the road without saying a word. When we came in sight of Mary's cottage, it seemed darker to me than it had been. Mary came out of the gate to meet us, and when she spoke to Bill, I dropped behind. They two went into the arbor that we had built for her. They sat talking for a few minutes, I could see them through the hedge, and at last I saw Bill bend down his head and kiss her. She put her arms round his neck and kissed him, and at that the whole of the light seemed to go out of the sky, and I wished I was dead. I would have gone away, but I could hardly stir. I leaned up against the hedge, and didn't mind any more till I heard Bill's voice calling me. I came in at the gate, putting on as good a face as I could, and came into the arbor. Bill and Mary were standing up, and Bill's face looked beaming while Mary's was red as a rose. Bill beckoned me over, and when I came near he says, "'Well, Mary, shall I tell him now?' "'Yes, Bill,' she says in a kind of whisper. So he says to me, "'Joe, I give her to you. She wouldn't let none do it but me, for she says she loves me like as a brother. Take her, Joe, and love her well, and God bless you both.' He put her in my arms, and she clung to me. I, I was bewildered and could hardly see, but when I came to look about, there was Mary in my arms, with her face buried in my breast and her arms around my neck. Bill was making down the road, upright and steady as ever. Even then, for a moment, I couldn't think of Mary, for my thoughts went back to when I saw Bill kneeling beside his bed with his arms stretched out, and I felt, if you'll believe me, more sorrow than joy. I know now that Bill had wrestled with the devil that night, and threw him if ever a man did. Poor Bill! Poor Bill! I suppose I needn't tell you what Mary and me said. It wouldn't sound much at any rate, although it pleased us. When I felt that she loved me, I forgot even Bill, and we was happier than tongue could tell. Well, the time went on for a month or two, and we was thinking of getting married soon. I was getting my cottage ready and spending some of the money I had saved to make it bright for Mary. Bill worked with me early and late, but it wasn't only his time that he gave to me. He would often go into the town and buy the things I wanted, and I'm sure he never got them for what he told me. I said nothing, for I knew that it would only hurt him, and it was little enough that I could do for Bill to let him help if he chose. I used to watch him to see if he wasn't unhappy, but I never seed a sign of sorrow on him. He always looked happy and bright, and he worked harder than ever, and was kinder to all around him. I knew he didn't forget, for how could he forget Mary? And I feared at times lest he might fret in secret, but I never seed him grieve. I could hardly imagine, when I would think on it, how Mary came to take me or, or love me when Bill was nigh her. Well, the time wasn't long going by for we was happy and had all our lives before us, and at length the day came round before we was to be married. It was Easter Sunday we was going to be married on, 
and all the people as knew Mary and me, and that was all the village, was going to have a grand holiday. We was to go on to have a feast out on the island, and we was getting the boats cleaned and nice and smart for the occasion. In course everybody had to bring their own dinners, but we was to join them all together and make a grand feast. We had got a cask of beer, and we was to have great doings and a dance on the grass. That's the finest sod for dancing in the countryside out yonder on the island, and we'd got Mike Wheeler to bring his fiddle with an extra set of strings. We weren't to come home till evening when the tide turned, and then we would have a race home. Well, Bill and me, we both took tea at Mary's house that evening, and when we came home Bill asked me to go into his house for a while and have a quiet talk. We lit our pipes, drew up our chairs, and sat down by the fire and puffed away without saying a word for some time. And then Bill says to me, "'Well, Joe, there won't be a man in the church tomorrow that won't envy you, except myself.' I thought of him kneeling down by the bedside that morning when he says that, so I thought to tell him. I put down my pipe, and came and put my arms on his shoulder as I used to do when we was boys together, and told him all I knew. He just shook hands with me, and says he, "'Joe, it was a hard fight.' but thank God I won. I've crushed out the old love now. Why, lad, tomorrow she'll be your wife, and I'll care for her no more than any other woman, as a sweetheart, I mean, for I'm a brother to her now as long as we live. And to you, Joe. It ain't that I think less of her, for I'd walk into the fire for her this minute, but I can't explain it, Joe. You know what I mean. Bill, says I, you've been a true friend to me and Mary and I hope we'll always be able to show you how much we both love you. May God judge me hard when I die, if ever I have a hard thought of you as long as I live. We said no more after that. I went out, but came back in a minute, to tell Bill to be sure and wake me if he was up first, but when I was passing the window, I see him hanging a coat up over it. It wasn't that he thought I'd spy on him again that he did that. I saw that in his face." but he feared that I might see him again somehow, and that it might pain me. Well, I woke in the morning as soon as it was daylight, and went down and had a swim, and then came home and brushed my new clothes, and laid out the shirt that Mary had worked for me herself, and washed as white as snow. Then Bill came down to me. He was to take his breakfast with me that morning, and he came all dressed for the wedding in a new set of clothes. He was a real handsome, fine fellow at any time, but he looked like a gentleman that morning. Then I thought that Mary must have done right to choose a laboring man like me rather than a chap like Bill that was above all of us except in his heart. We went off to the church and waited till Mary and her mother came. All the people was there outside the porch, and some of the gentlefolks was inside. The squire's family was in their pew, for, you see, Mary was a favorite with them all, and they came early to church to see her married. I felt very solemn then, but I could hardly feel as how Mary was going to marry me. There she was, as lovely as an angel, and blushing like a rose. I said my I will in a low voice, for it seemed awkward to me to say it loud. But Mary says hers out in a clear, sweet voice, and then the parson blessed us, and spoke to us so solemn that we both cried, and Mary nestled up close to me. When it came to kiss the bride, Bill was first and claimed the kiss, so the other lads had to give up. 
Bill bent down and took her pretty face between his two hands and kissed her on the forehead. Again the wedding was over, it was time for service, so we all went to our seats, and I never felt solemner in my life than I did then, nor did Mary either. When the service was over we all came out, and the people stood by on both sides to let Mary and me walk down the churchyard together and go first out of the gate. We all went down to the beach where the boat was ready on the shore. Some of them was freshly painted, and a couple had bright ribbons tied about them. Bill's boat was the one that Mary and me was to go in, and Bill himself was to pull stroke oar in her. He had got for a crew three of the young fellows we knew best and who was the cracks at Rowan, and we was determined to race all the other boats to the island. The lads had all run on before us, and when we came down to the beach the boats was all ready and the baskets with the dinner put in them, so we all got on board and off we started. Mary and me we held the rudder together, and Bill and his lads bent to the oars, and away we flew, and in a quarter of an hour came to the island, leading the others by a hundred yards. We all got out, and the lads carried up the baskets to the slope up yonder, where you could see the moonlight shine on the island where there was a fine level place on the edge of the cliff. The grass there was short and as smooth as a table, and when you stood on the edge of the cliff the water was straight below you, for the rock went sheer some forty feet. Mary and me stood there on the edge while the lads and the girls got ready the feast, for they wouldn't let us put hand to anything, and we looked at the water hurrying by under us. The tide had turned, and the water was running like a mill-race down away past the island, and running straight away for the head off there as far as you can see. The currents is very contrary there, so you'd better not get caught in them when you're sailing or swimming. We all sat down, and if we didn't enjoy our dinner, all of us, it was a queer thing, and after dinner was over all the girls insisted on having a dance. We got the things cleared off and danced away for some time, and then someone proposed blind man's buff. One young fellow was blinded, and we all stood round, and then the fun began. The young chap, Mark Summers by name, used to make wild rushes to try and get someone, and then the girls yelled out, and they all scurried away as quick as they could, and the fun grew greater and greater. At last he made a dive over to the place where Mary was standing near the brink of the cliff. We all yelled to her to take care where she was going, but I suppose she thought it was merely over fun, for she laughed and screamed out like the others, and stepped backward. Before anyone could stop her, she went over the edge of the cliff and disappeared. I was sitting up on a rock, and when I saw her fall over the edge, I gave a cry that you might have heard a mile away, and jumped down and ran across the grass. But a better man than me was there before me. Bill had pulled off his jacket and kicked off his shoes, and was at the edge before me. Before he jumped, he cried out, "'Joe, run for the boats, quick! I'll keep her up till you come. I can swim stronger than you.' I didn't wait a second, but ran down to where the boats was drawn up on the beach. Some of the chaps came with me as hard as they could run, and we shoved down the nearest boat. But in spite of our efforts, and we were so mad with excitement that not one of us but had the strength of ten men, it took us a couple of minutes to get out fair on the water. Well, when we was fair started I pulled so hard that I broke my oar, and we had to stop to get another, and then we had to row all the way around the spur of the rocks out there before we could even see where Mary and Bill should be. 
The men and women on the rocks screamed out to us and pointed in their direction, and the boat flew along at every stroke. But the current was mortal strong, and they had been for nigh five minutes in the water before we caught sight of them, and it seemed to me to be years before we came anigh them at all. Mary was weighed down with her clothes on, and Bill with his, and in spite of what a swimmer I knew Bill was, I feared lest we should come too late. At last we began to close on them. I could see over my shoulder as we rode. I could only see Mary's face, but that was beacon enough for me. I called to one of the men to slip into my place and row, and he did, and I got into the bows. There was Mary, with her face all white and her eyes closed as if she was dead. Her hair was all dragging in the water, and as the current rolled her along, her dress moved as if it was some strange fish under the water. I could see nothing of Bill, but I hadn't need to think, for I knew that where Mary was, there was Bill somewhere anigh to her. When we came nearer I saw where Bill was. Look here, he was down under the water, and with his last breath he was keeping her afloat till we came. I saw his two hands rise up out of the water, holding her up by the hair, but that was all. Many's the time since then that, in spite of all I loved Mary, I was tempted to be cross with her, for we laboring men is only rough folk after all, and we have a deal of hardship to beat at times. But whenever I was tempted to say a hard word or even to think hard of her, them two hands of Bill seemed to rise up between me and her, and I could no more think or say a hard word than I could stand quiet and see another man strike her, and I wouldn't be like for to do that. Well, we took them into the boat and came home. Mary recovered, for she had only had the shock of her fall, but when we took in Bill it was only—he kept his word that he spoke to me that night. He gave up his life for hers. You'll see that on his tomb in the churchyard that we all put up for him. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man shall give up his life for his friend. There's no more left like Bill, and Mary thinks it too, as well as me. You've been listening to Greater Love by Bram Stoker. It's a pity that Stoker, who was best known as a man of the theater, never achieved his full renown as an author during his lifetime. Indeed, tonight's story, which contributed to his popularity, appeared two years after his death at 64 in 1912. Let's conclude with a poem for the winter season by Dick Farrell. It goes out with thanks to Jeremy and to Rick. I will rest for yet another winter. Books I'll read, words I'll write, brandy sip. And I will place a log upon the fire. Glowing coals, pop and crackle, ashes deep. I'll follow the aroma to the kitchen, sugar cookies, pumpkin pie, coffee rich. And I will lie down snugly on the sofa, warmest blanket, darkest night, deepest sleep. I'm Richard Figge, and this has been for Reading Out Loud. I hope you'll join me again next week. In the meantime, be well, be happy, stay safe. All the best. Thank you.